Let's see, and I think Mrs. Parham is doing double duty today. So she will be taking kids um, out the door to my left. Just follow her. The rest of you ought to be turning in your Bibles to uh, Daniel chapter 1. As we consider that text this morning. So before, before we read our, our text this morning, would you join me in prayer? Oh God, prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we might hear your word and also do it through the power and strength of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask these things in Christ for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Daniel chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths, in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. 
So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine which they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. All these four youths, God gave them As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then, at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for... Every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus, the king. So as we continue our study in the book of Daniel, let me just um, make sure we try to catch everybody up to, di- up, up to speed. And I'll just do a brief, re- a brief review of where we went last week. Last week, we just did an overall view of the book of Daniel. And we just looked at some of the big themes of the book of Daniel. We looked at the sovereignty of God in the book of Daniel. We looked to see how um, mankind has temporary or um, and derived sovereignty over um, some of the matters on the earth. And then we also saw how um, Daniel was faithful in his captivity. And so we learn from the very first verse that Daniel, the, the story of, presented to us in the book of Daniel began in the year 605 B.C. It was the year that King Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and besieged it. This was the first um, attack that Nebuchadnezzar um, inflicted upon Jerusalem. And uh, there were, so it was the first of three. We see this one in 605 B.C. There was another one around 597. And then the final one was in 586 B.C. And that's when Jerusalem ultimately fell and ceased to, uh, and basically was burned to the ground. But in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he besieges it and he takes a bunch of people Captive. That basically what he does is he finds the best people. Who are the, the brightest and the best, the strongest? Who's going to enhance my kingdom the best? And so Daniel and these three other um, individuals are highlighted in the book of Daniel. They were taken captive in 605. In the first deportation, these four were taken captive. And we should understand that what we see, in, especially in verses 1 and 2, now when when, when Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked and besieged and was victorious over the people, over Jerusalem, this was certainly a military crisis. It was certainly a political crisis, but it was much more than that. If we limit it to simply a military or political crisis, I think we miss much of what's going on because it was those things. Obviously, if your town gets attacked and people get deported and basically they... Um, impose heavy taxes and, ter- uh, and tariffs upon you, which you have to pay. Otherwise, they'll come in and destroy you and kill you more. That is certainly political and a mil- military crisis. But make no mistake, this was also a religious or a theological crisis. Notice what Daniel writes in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim 
king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of the God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar. So the very first thing that we see going on is that Nebuchadnezzar went in to Jerusalem, besieged it, basically attacked it, and then boldly and arrogantly walks into the temple, the temple that Solomon built, walks into this temple and just helps himself to some of the articles of gold and silver. And he says, I'm going to take these back to my and put them in the temple of my God. I want you to understand what's going on. Well, first of all, let me point out, notice where he takes them. I think it's significant. If you are a Hebrew reading this, this would have stood out because notice that Daniel does not say he took them back to Babylon. He took them to the land of Shinar. Well, that should just leap out at us because what is Shinar? Well, the first time we see the land of Shinar is in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. And the land of Shinar represents the first time where humanity corporately gathers together to assert their authority over God Most High. And they gather together in the plain of Shinar and they come up with this scheme. Let's build us a tower into heaven. We do not want God to rule over us. We want to have authority and lordship over the king of heaven. And we will assert our own will and we will exalt ourselves above the heavens, above the God of heavens. And we will rule ourselves. We claim that God does not have any leadership, rulership or authority over us. We are Masters of our own destiny. Folks, the land of Shinar, this whole battle that Daniel puts forth is a battle between the city of man and the city of God. Who rules? Who's in charge? Who is king and who is Lord? And you'll notice that he takes them to the house of his God. This is a battle of deities. And so Nebuchadnezzar walks into the temple that Solomon built. He walks into the holy place, perhaps even into the holy of holies, and takes some of the vessels, the gold and the silver, and snatches them away. And he puts them in the house of his gods. In other words, you, Yahweh, God of heaven, have no authority, have no rule. We are the ultimate authority. I'm going to steal your stuff and you can't stop me. And not only am I going to steal your stuff, I'm going to go and put them in the place of my gods. What are you going to do? Can you stop me? You can't do anything. And so Nebuchadnezzar is asserting this is a purely theological issue going on. Who's in charge? Who's the gods? Who, what God rules? Certainly by this time when these exiles happened and especially when Jerusalem fell in 586 BC, one of the questions that would have been on the minds of an Israelite would be Is our God powerful and strong enough? Is our God really God? Or are the gods of Babylon rulers? That would be one question. But here's another question. If our God is truly the God of heaven, has he abandoned us? Has God... Have we offended God so much? 
Have we sinned so greatly that God has just thrown up his hands and says, forget you guys, I'm going to cast you to the wind and whatever happens, happens. Because that's what it looks like. It looks like God did not, Yahweh did not defend his people. I believe that the book of Daniel is written to counter that idea. In fact, the book of Daniel, we will see throughout, as we go through it, that the book of Daniel affirms that God is faithful to his covenant. And in fact, their deportation, their exile, is actually an affirmation that God is upholding his covenant. Read back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's uncanny what Moses writes. Moses says this. Here's what's going to happen. God's going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be a great land. And he's going to do it by his mighty power and by his deliverance. But here's what's going to happen. You're going to serve the gods of the land. And you're going to commit idolatry. And God's going to send prophets. And he's going to send people. And you're not going to listen to them. And then here's what God is going to do. He's going to bring another nation greater and more powerful than you, and they're going to attack you, and they're going to take you captive, and they're going to take you away in exile, and there you will serve the gods of that land for a period of time, and then God will set you free and bring you back to your land. That's what Moses writes in Deuteronomy. That was part of the covenant. Part of the covenant was, if you obey me, I'll protect you, and you'll prosper. We always like the good parts of the covenant, right? The ones that say, I'm going to do great things for you and I'm going to be nice and I'm going to forgive you. We oftentimes gloss over and forget the, the consequences, the consequence part of the covenant. And so this exile is actually evidence that God has not forgotten his covenant. He has not abandoned his people. He's actually fulfilling the very words that he said he was going to do. Keep my covenant and I will be your God and you'll be my people and you'll live in a, a, a land where, you know what? Your crops will always grow and everything will be well and I'll heal your diseases. Violate my covenant and I'm going to bring in a nation stronger and mightier than you and they're going to take you captive and you will serve their gods in their land. So the book of Daniel, actually, we see Daniel constantly going back to the covenant. We'll especially see this in in Daniel chapter 9. He goes back to the promises of God and, and, and Daniel understands that their captivity is going to be 70 years. How does he know that? Because that's what God said through the prophets, through the prophet Jeremiah. You're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And so the book of Daniel is an answer to those who might think because it appears that Yahweh has been defeated Actually, what's going on is that Yahweh is just fulfilling the covenant that he said he would uphold. So that's some of our background. So as we go through the the book of Daniel, we are going to um, keep in mind that underlying everything that that goes on as we study the book of Daniel, there are going to be two issues that kind of govern Uh, our thinking, our thought process as we go through this book. And the first underlying question is this. How does one live faithfully to God in a pagan culture? So how does one live faithfully to the living God when surrounded by godless people? That's our first question, but it assumes something. It assumes our second question. It assumes that the God we're trying to live faithfully for is worth living for. So our second question, is God worth living for? Is he the true God? Because, see, if there's a God but he's not worth living for, then why bother living faithfully in a pagan culture? Why not just eat, drink, and be married because tomorrow you die? 
If God is not the true God, and if he or even if he is the true God, but he is some distant, uncaring, unfamiliar God who doesn't care what happens in his creation, then why bother trying to live faithfully? So our first question is, how do we live faithfully? But that assumes that God is worth living faithfully, that the God we have is one who is worth living faithfully for. Do you get that? So those two questions are going to um, underlie everything we do as we go through the book of Daniel. And so today we're going to deal primarily with that first question. How do we live faithfully? How does a person live faithfully to God in a pagan culture? Next, next time uh, in chapter 2, we'll, we'll deal with that second question more fully. I'll deal with it a little bit today, but our primary work today is how does a person live faithfully to God in a pagan culture? All right, are you good? All right, so here we go. I don't know about you, but I don't like feeling like I'm the uh, odd one out. I, mean, I, I like to be accepted. I like to be received. I like to be liked. I don't want to be seen as weird. I was going to insert a little comment there, but. <laughs> See, David, Daniel is now in a new environment. He is now in the land of Shinar. He is in Babylon. And the culture of Babylon is completely different from the culture that he is accustomed to. It is different than the culture of Israel. For instance, in the land of Shinar, it would have been odd, weird, for a person to say, you know, on sundown on Friday, I'm going to stop working until sundown on Saturday. And I'm going to devote that time to the worship of my God. You shall keep the Sabbath day. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, see, when Daniel was living in Jerusalem, that would have been accepted. I'm not saying that everybody followed the Sabbath laws faithfully. I'm just saying their mindset would have seen that as normal. Even the most rebellious of the Israelites in Jerusalem would have seen somebody keeping the Sabbath day, and that would not have been odd to them. That would have been very normal. They may have said, well, I choose not to do that. That's fine, but it would have been very normal for them to see somebody keeping the Sabbath and even maybe endorse it and maybe even pay lip service to it and say, oh, yeah, we're all, you know, keeping the Sabbath. That's what we're supposed to do. They might have gotten, in the, gotten up on the synagogue or well, gone into the temple and, and worshipped God on, on, on the Sabbath day. And they may have even paid lip service and done it outwardly. That would not have been odd, but in this new environment, Daniel's morals, Daniel's worldview, Daniel's practices would have been seen as odd and out of place. Well, what a weirdo. Daniel's dietary laws. I don't eat bacon. And we would also ask, kind of weird, what are you doing not eating bacon? Are you kidding me? And it would have been seen as weird, but back in Jerusalem, nobody would have thought that was odd. Daniel would have, now they still may have eaten pork, but it wouldn't have been seen as odd. So Daniel is in a whole new place where his morals and worldviews and practices were deemed 
odd, out of place. And this is so currently relevant to us today because the New Testament describes you and I as though we are living in exile. Sometimes we don't think so. We think that, and it's becoming more and more prominent that the people of God are being seen as odd. I'm going to, I'll spend a little bit more time on that down a little later on in this message. But let's look, just look at a couple of passages of text. I think I put them up. Look at 1 Peter 2, 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Peter actually uses the word. You're sojourners. You're just traveling through. You are exiles. This land is not your own. To abstain from the passions of, of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter's saying, you guys are exiles. Let's look at this next one in 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The early church understood that they were exiles. One more in Hebrews These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And so the New Testament church understood itself as not belonging to culture, that it was that it was normal to be seen as odd. It was normal to be seen as out of touch. Of course we're out of touch because we're exiles. We're from another land. And the customs and morals and, and way of life and way of thinking in our other land is completely foreign to the place where we have been exiled. I believe that our culture today is becoming more and more like the early church. You always hear people say we need to get back to be like the early church. This was the thinking of the early church. We are exiles. We don't fit in. We do stand out. We are seen as weird. We are not cool and we are not hip. Because we're exiles. That's not the way our land does things. That's not the custom of our land. We don't behave the same way. The early church saw itself as exiles. And I think that as you and I, as the church, stands for and lives in accordance with the worldview and the thinking of our homeland. And as our, as this earth becomes more and more pagan, we will be seen as more and more out of touch. This is what Daniel was in. He was seen as weird and out of touch and odd. Let us not be surprised then. That you and I, when we live for the principles of God, might actually be seen to be out of touch. And I think, I fear sometimes because the church is so busy trying to be relevant that we are no longer distinct and we're no different, but we're exiles. Now, where we draw the line, that's going to be an issue we'll have to discuss. So this is Daniel living in this strange place where his lifestyle is seen as out of touch. And so he is exiled. That is, he is to be fully immersed in a Babylonian culture. So the first thing they they do is they isolate him and his friends. They isolate him from everything he knows, from Temple worship, 
following the Ten Commandments, dietary laws, holy days, separate them, and we're going to bring you into our culture and we are going to fully immerse you so that you will talk and dress and act and speak and eat like a Babylonian. In fact, when we look at you, nobody would be able to tell that you are anything but Babylonian. In other words, Babylon had their bodies, they were slaves, and now Babylon sought to conform their hearts and their minds so that they would learn to think and reason and dress and speak through a Babylonian filter so everything they did would be through a Babylonian worldview. In fact, it goes so far as they changed their names. Their Hebrew names pointed to God. For instance, you see Daniel. You notice it ends with the word E-L. Does anybody know what the most basic name for God in Hebrew is? L. Daniel just simply, I believe it means God is my judge or God is judge. All right. And, and, and their names ended, or they might have ended in um, Hananiah. Did you get that? Yah. All right. Uh, Yahweh. So all of these names, their names actually point to the God of heaven, the God that they worship. And Babylon comes in and says, no, we're going to remove that and we are going to name you after our gods. And so their new names actually point towards these new deities. In other words, Israel and all vestiges of her God are being eliminated, conformed. We want you to be conformed to the Babylonian mold. We want to make sure that there is nothing of your old land left and so that you fit in perfectly with your new culture. Anybody see any relevance today? You kind of see maybe the direction I might be heading. All right, put on, let's think about this. I'm not there yet, but you probably know the direction I'm going. So let me just summarize this idea of conformity and the the purpose of Babylon. The first one was isolation. Take them, remove them from all old old homeland, fatherland, remove all vestiges of where they came from. Make sure that even their names don't reflect their God. Take it away and then immerse them in our thinking, in our education, in our worldview. Make them dress like we dress so that you cannot tell the difference between a Jewish exile and a Babylonian native. So, Perhaps for us, one of the lessons that we can learn is that living in exile means a pressure to conform. Living in exile assumes a pressure to conform. And as we saw, the New Testament assumes we are in exile. Hence, there is going to be pressure for us to conform to the land in which we are exiled. And so we need to think about how we live. Because how we think about God will affect how we live. As I said earlier, if God, if there is a God, and He is distant and removed as the deists 
would would put forth that God created everything and then removed himself and doesn't care about what's going on in the world. If that is the, the true understanding of who God is, then that would affect how we live. Well, if he doesn't care how I live, then I'm just going to do whatever I want. When I first became a Christian or actually when I first moved away, I, I, my upbringing, I, I went to an Episcopal uh, day school, and so I had religion classes. But when in seventh grade, I, I said to myself, you know, I don't know if there's a God. I, I don't believe in the God I'm taught, they're taught, telling me about. And I don't really want to waste my time serving some figment of somebody's imagination. There's other things to do. If God were real, then I think I'd want to be on his side. But if he is not, I do not want to waste my time. I came to the conclusion that there was no God, and that affected the way I live. Once I came to understand that there was a God, and he is the God who is revealed in the Bible, that also affected the way I lived and the way I thought. Our understanding of God affects how we live. And so, who is the God that, um, is he the God who is weak and unable to protect his people? And save them from exile. Is that the God of Daniel? Or is he the God who spoke and everything came into being? Is he the God who breathes the breath of life and dust comes up and lives? Is he the God who speaks and things come alive? And is he the God who speaks and things cease to exist? Is he the one who sees the outcast who has fled from her abusive uh, home and he sees her in the wilderness and tells her to, do, to, to not fear? Is he the God who provides when there is no provision? Is he the God who will provide for himself a lamb? Is he the God who inhabits the praises of his people? Is he the God who says, I'm the beginning and the end? Is he the God who says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of Almighty. Heaven and earth declare his beauty. Is he the God who was and is and is to come? Is he that God? Because if he is and you believe that, that should impact the way you live. If he's not, then that will also impact the way you live. And so Babylon is seeking to conform Daniel to move away from the God who is the God who created heaven and earth, the God who lives forever, the God who is holy, holy, holy. Babylon is saying, move away from that God and serve our gods. And you don't even want to know um, one of the gods of Babylon is Marduk, and, and you don't even want to, it's pornographic how he created the world. So we won't even go there. You can look it up. So what God do you serve? So, that's where he's at. But Daniel won't be conformed. And we see this, of course, throughout the New Testament. Don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We read that in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 1 Peter 1, 14, we read, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Don't live the way you used to live. Don't be conformed to that lifestyle. John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. And so Daniel is brought to a place where he says, well, I'm not going to be defiled with your food. I, I love this. In, in, uh, this actually comes in 
uh, verse 8. So Daniel made up his mind. Some of your Bibles say he resolved. But it's interesting because it's the exact same word used a verse earlier. Then the commander of the officials assigned. Assigned and resolved are the exact same word in the Hebrew. And, and the idea here is to establish or to um, give or to... Resolve. And so, just as the commander established new names, Daniel established that I will not be conformed. You can assign me a new name. You can teach me your stuff, but I will not be conformed. This is where Daniel's going. I'm in this exile. I'm in the Babylonian land, but make no mistake, I will never be Babylonian. I serve the God of heaven. And Daniel made an early resolution that I will not be conformed. And here's where he makes his stand. He makes his stand by saying, I will not, I will not eat the meat and the wine that is fed to me from the king's table. Now, this is... This is Cause for a lot of questions. Why did Daniel make a stand here? Why was this so important? Why would Daniel not eat the king's food? Or I should say, eat the, the meat and the wine. Well, some people have said, well, perhaps it's because the, um, the meat wasn't kosher. In other words, they might have been served pork or horse meat or something like that, which would have been part of a Babylonian diet. And so, therefore, Daniel says, well, I'm not going to defile myself with unkosher food. Well, that's that's convincing, except it doesn't take account for the wine. That wouldn't have been an issue. Others have put forth, well, probably the, the meat and the wine were probably sacrificed to pagan deities, and, and Daniel didn't want to eat food that had been sacrificed to pagan deities, which makes sense, except so would the vegetables. In fact, we have archaeological documents um, from this time in Babylonian history where they sacrificed vegetables to their gods. So that wouldn't have been, that doesn't seem to really make sense. Some have put forth, well, this is rich celebratory food and Daniel is in a time of mourning. And that makes some sense, except it doesn't cover the idea that Daniel felt that this was defilement. Daniel felt the food was defiling. Another idea is that, well, Daniel didn't want to give the impression that he was dependent upon the king for the food, except for the fact that he was dependent upon the king for the food, whether it be vegetables or meat. He was still dependent upon the king for his food. The last one that at least we're going to talk about, there's probably five or six others, but the last one that we'll discuss is that perhaps this pagan food and drink epitomized pagan culture. And Daniel says, I will not be molded by pagan culture. In other words, what we eat and what we drink and what we wear and how we speak constitutes an outward expression of our commitments. And Daniel says, at this point, I'm drawing my, the, the line. I think that best covers um, why Daniel thought this was not only defiling um, and, and why he would not eat. I, I'm not going to go there. That's just where I'm going to draw the line. And, and, and we can probably ask, why draw the line here? I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that it's as important as the principle, though. So let's not get caught up in the minutiae and forget the big principle. 
Because the principle here is that Daniel did draw a line. He did come to a place where he said, okay, enough's enough. I I know I live in, in Babylon. I know I have a job that, you know, calls me to live in this pagan environment. I know that I can't do anything about that. This is where I am. However, there are some things that I will not do. There is a line where I will that I will set forth and that I will establish that I am not Babylonian. So I guess we're going to ask ourselves this question, what is conforming us? Or maybe more importantly, what is conforming you? See, we are living as strangers and aliens exiles and there is no way to escape worldly influence you just can't I don't believe that God has called us to be monks and to live in a monastery and to separate ourselves from the from everything those guys still struggled we live in this world and we're going to be influenced by this world whether you flip on the TV or look at your, your phone and, or you go through the line at, the, at, at Walmart and there's magazines blaring, all sorts of things that are causing to influence us. Billboards on the streets say, think this way, act that way, do this, live your life this way. All of these things are influencing us. You cannot get away from it, but Daniel draws a line. What is conforming you? So, we want to pause and think then, as exiles, as exiles, not as citizens of this world, but as exiles of another place, living here as ambassadors, if you will, how then do we handle money? How do we handle the media? How do we handle our time and our vocation? What do we think about sex and promotion and relationships and family and child rearing and education and leisure and food and all of these things? How do we think about these things as exiles? How do we think about leisure and recreation? And our work, for instance, let's maybe think. You work at a job. Praise God, you have a job. But your boss isn't a believer. Probably a lot of you work in jobs where your boss isn't a believer. And your boss comes to you and says, Oh man, you do a great job. You're the greatest employee we have. I'm going to give you a promotion. You're going to make 25% more money. Full health benefit. I'm going to give you all sorts of good stuff. But you realize this is a good job. Really good job. But it's going to cause me to be away from my family for significant time. Do you take the job? I don't know. Maybe it is the right decision. But what, what's the filter you're viewing your acceptance or rejection of that job through? Is it because, hey, this is what we do. I can make more money. And besides, how odd would it be amongst your coworkers if they found out that you said, no, you know what, I'm going to spend more time with my kids. I want my weekends free so I can 
take my kids fishing and take them to church and I can do stuff and hang out with them. And, and your coworkers are, are you joking me? What kind of a nut job are you? You can make a whole lot more money. You can buy them vacations. You're going to have a whole lot more. See, that would be seen as odd. Why wouldn't you take a job that pays more? Or perhaps take a job, but you're going to a place where there is no good church. Would you take the job? Are you willing to be seen as odd, out of place, a little weird? Probably one of the most significant areas is how an exile, us, view the whole idea of sex. Two examples I'll give you because it's kind of a football weekend. And uh, one of my examples is playing probably right in just a few minutes. Um, Russell Wilson is uh, quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. And uh, he has made a profession that he is a follower of Christ. I don't know if he is. Um, I, I have no reason to doubt his words. He seems to be a decent guy, but I don't know him. I've never met him. I don't hang out with him. But it's come up in some of his interviews that he and his girlfriend are abstaining from sexual relationship until they're married. And he's seen as weird and odd. And it's like, are you kidding? Look at her. She's like Miss World or something like that. What's wrong with you, Russell? And they look at her. What's wrong with you? He's a nice, wealthy, fit, handsome man. What are you guys doing? What's wrong with you? Let me give you another example in the same idea, uh, with the same idea, only uh, uh, the degree of opposition even greater. You probably may have heard of a guy, Tim Tebow. He used to play in, in the National Football League. He doesn't anymore. But I don't know, a while back, his girlfriend broke up with him. And the reason, at least initially it was stated, the reason that his girlfriend broke up with him is because he would not sleep with her. It turns out that that wasn't the case. But nevertheless, well, that was the narrative that was out there. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing guys going, not only what a weirdo, how odd, but hateful towards them. You, Mr. Tebow, I despise what you do. I mean, it wasn't just like, well, you know, that's his thing and I... I don't follow that, but that's his thing and good for him. There was some of that, but there were people who were violently hateful towards this man. See, he's odd. He's weird. How can you not? He's in exile. And he says, I will not be conformed. I'm not putting these people up on a pedestal as super Christian. I don't know their lives. I'm just saying in these examples... They're saying, yeah, I'm odd. I'm out of touch. And I'm weird. And I'm an exile. How do you educate your family? How do you educate your kids? Well, I'm... I'm going to homeschool my kids. Somebody say, well, that's weird. That's odd. After all, that means that somebody's probably got to stay home and, and, and spend time with the kids. And that will sacrifice your family income. Seems odd. Why would you do that? There's a perfectly good public school down the road. They'll take care of it. Everything's good. 
Or perhaps you could send them to a private school that promotes your Christian values, a Christian school. Of course, that would require them that you have to work a, a second job to earn the income because that might be very, it might be expensive. That's odd. Why would you work so hard to send your kid to a school like that when there's a perfectly good public school? But y- you see people then, I- I'm not telling you homeschool or don't homeschool or private school. I'm, I'm not telling you that. I'm saying there comes a place on what basis do we filter and make these decisions? When do we conform and say, no longer am I living as an exile? And so Daniel is living in exile and he makes a stand and he says, I am not Babylonian. I'm a Hebrew and I live for Yahweh because Yahweh is the one who spoke all things into being. Yahweh is the one who is the beginning and the end. Yahweh is holy, holy, holy. Yahweh will provide for himself. Yahweh parts the Red Sea. Yahweh delivers. Yahweh has us here in accordance with his covenant, which he said will be here for 70 years, and then he will set us free because Yahweh is faithful to his covenant. I will remain faithful to him and not this culture. That's where I'm drawing the line. So, <clears throat> we've addressed this issue then, or <clears throat> we've looked at least briefly at this issue. How does a person live faithful to God in a pagan culture? Just briefly, I want to touch on the second question, and that is, who is the real God? And I'm going to just touch on this. We'll deal with it much more when we get into Daniel chapter 2, but I do want to just bring it up because it is still, while it's not the, the, the major part of chapter 1, it is a, an important part of chapter 1. And that Yahweh, the God who Daniel um, serves, and he's the God of Israel and the one who created all things, that it appears that that God, Yahweh, has been defeated, that he has been rendered powerless, that he might even be imaginary, unable to protect his people. And yet the first chapter of the book of Daniel shows that that is far from the truth, because again, as we pointed out last week, we see that... Uh, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it, but the Lord, the Lord gave Jehoiakim. How did the captivity happen? How did they get taken captive? The Lord gave it. The Lord made this happen. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, God raised up Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, we, and I think I mentioned that last week. We cited that in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, man, your people are sinning. You need to do something, and God says, I am going to do something. I'm going to raise up a fierce and mighty nation. They're going to come and attack them. I'm raising them up. That's this right here, Habakkuk, or I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm raising them up. He's going to be my guy, and he's going to do exactly what I want him to do. And we'll definitely see that when we get into chapter 2. So God is active. We also see in verse 9 that God granted Daniel favor. How did Daniel get favor with his captors? Was it because he was a nice guy? Well, it appears he was a pretty nice guy. It appears he was pretty diplomatic. But the text is clear. God gave them favor. The diplomacy might have helped, but even they may have been diplomatic, and if God had not given them favor, they would not have had favor in this regard. God gave them favor. God caused them to prosper. God gave them. God supplied. Verse 17. And all these four youth, God gave them knowledge and intelligence. In every branch of literature and wisdom, Daniel even understood all kinds of dreams and visions. How? God gave it. 
So we see who is the great God. Is he weak and can't protect his temple? No, he's the one who allowed it to be destroyed, gave it into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar so that he might show Nebuchadnezzar his glory and beauty and power. Chapter 2, though. And it appears that these, these kids were ten times more... I was going to say ten times more better, but that's... Okay, ten times more better. You know what I'm saying. I don't need to be... Grim, that's not here. I don't need to be grammatically correct. Ten times more better. No, they weren't just a little bit better. They were ten times better. Why? Because God gave them wisdom and knowledge and understanding. God gave them and gave them the ability not just to be better, but ten times better. And I love the way this chapter ends. It seems weird. It seems kind of out of place the way this chapter ends. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Cyrus was a pagan king. But he was the pagan king who defeated the empire of Babylon. And he is the pagan king who freed Israel from her captivity. Hmm, just like God said in Deuteronomy chapter 28, just like God said in Jeremiah, you're going to be there 70 years, and then I'm going to raise somebody up and set you free. Just like Isaiah said, Isaiah actually names him by name. Hundreds of years prior. Isaiah says Cyrus, a guy by the name of Cyrus, is going to come and he is going to raise up and set you free hundreds of years before Cyrus is even born. Don't miss that. This Daniel, he reigned. Who is, is God weak and unable to protect his people and unable to fulfill his covenant? No, actually fulfills all of his promises, exile being one of them, the negative side of it. But after 70 years, I'm going to set my people free and let them go under the reign of Cyrus. Who's running the show? Is there any mistake? And so it begins with the apparent defeat of Yahweh, but it concludes with his exaltation. See, kings and empires come and go. They rise and they fall. They appear to be sovereign, but there is only one sovereign, and it is God who fulfills his promises and purposes. And he does according to what he pleases, even in his sending his people into exile is a fulfillment of his promises, doing exactly what he said he would do. He doesn't waver. So empires come and go. Kings rise and fall. And we live in an area, folks, I don't know if America will be around for much longer. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't know. But one way or another, if it, if it raises up into exaltation, it is God who is exalted. And if she crumbles in a heap, it's God who brings her down. Who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow our politicians and Supreme Court, even the best ones? Will you be conformed to the laws that, and, and the ideas, not even the laws, but just the ideas and the, and the worldview that would say, accept and be like us, and then you won't be weird and you won't be odd and you'll be cool and everybody will accept you and everything will go really well and you'll get that promotion, everything will be good. Do you go along with that or you say, no, I'm willing to be odd. I'm willing to be weird. 
And you should note that in the first six chapters of Daniel, everything seems to go well. They get exalted and you're thinking, oh, well, if I follow God, then everything will go smooth for me and I'll get promotions and I'll get money and I'll get wealthy and all these things. Just read 7 through 12 and you'll see the people of God are slaughtered. So in verses 1 through 6, everything goes well. They get promoted. Everything's wonderful. But in chapters 7 through 12, not so much. But here's what is steadfast. We will stand for God, whether we are promoted or slaughtered. We will stand for God. And we will not be conformed to Babylonian culture or the culture in which we live. So I'll conclude then here. We, need to, we have considered briefly who is the true God, and I'll address that more in chapter 2. But who is the true God? And it is Yahweh, the one who has revealed the scriptures to it. It is the one whom, who is God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the true God. He is the God of heaven. He's the one who's revealed in Scripture. That is the true God. And he is sovereign and he rules and he is faithful to his promises. Both the good promises and the not so good promises. They're all good promises. They're just consequences, I guess. We've also considered how we live in exile and there is no hard, fast rule. I can't say do this, do that, and do the other. And then you're, you're living faithful like Daniel. But are you filtering your, your decision-making process through the purity of God's word? And so we are living in exile. I want to make sure we understand that. See, there was a time where we were probably the majority. And, and everybody in kind of, you know, Christians, you know, even if people didn't follow Christ, they, they probably understood, oh, well, you know, yeah, they, you know, it, it's good to be honest. And it's, you know, it's good, you know. You know, the sexual morals of the Christians is probably pretty good. And, and, you know, going to church on Sunday, I don't personally go to church on Sunday, but I think that's a pretty good thing. That's now seen as odd and it's seen as weird. Why would you get up early and go to some little building and hear a boring speech and sing some songs? Why would you do that? Don't you realize your kids are playing soccer and volleyball and they're on travel teams and you need to go see them play? Fish are biting. And the slopes are good for skiing. Wouldn't, you, wouldn't that be better? No, I'm going to get up early and I'm going to go to that room where a bunch of other people like me gather and we sing songs and we hear a message from some guy who never seems to be quiet, never seems to shut down. And, and that's what we're going to do. And it's odd. That's weird. Really? Why do you do that? What's conforming us? Where do you draw the line? I want you to understand that as exiles, we will be the odd ones. And that's becoming more and more prevalent in our culture. We used to be somewhat, the majority somewhat accepted. But as our culture gets more and more pagan, you and I will either become more and more pagan with it, or we will become more and more odd. We will be seen more as Amish. I'm, I'm not saying that we're going to go around in wagons and, you know, not wear zippers or, I don't know, I don't know if they can use buttons or not, but we're not going to be that, but we will be seen in that same vein of uh, thought. We'll be seen in that same light. It's like, it just doesn't make any sense. It's so weird. 